Hi, I'm Heather Morrison. On each show, guests share stories from their lives in theater, film, and TV. So grab your tights and tap shoes and meet the geeks in the green room. Today's guest is Irma Herrera, writer, solo performer, civil rights lawyer, and activist. She wrote and developed her one-woman show, Why Would I Mispronounce My Own Name, at the Marsh in San Francisco. Irma shares her life experiences as she has had to navigate through sexism and racism in relation to name, identity, culture, gender, and ethnicity. Irma's show was selected to be part of the Best of SF Solo Series 2019-2020, to played at the San Francisco Fringe Festival, and went to APAP, which is the Association of Performing Arts Professions in New York. Her latest creation, her Stairwell Teatro, explores things about names and identity. Check out the show notes for links mentioned in the episode. Okay, so are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. okay, thank you very much for coming and being on my podcast. Today, my guest is playwright, performer, and social activist, Irma Herrera. Did I get that right? Pretty darn close. <laughs> Even better, would you say your name for us? Irma Herrera. That's wonderful. And it's so interesting that your show, before we get to your show, I just want to tell you that I ask every one of my guests to say their name for me and for our listeners, because I don't want to mess up their name. And I think it's interesting to hear your name said by you. It's part of who you are, it's your identity. It's the name that your parents gifted you or bestowed upon you. And I want to talk about that. How important is your name? I think for all of us, our names are so tied into our identity. And I remind people that our name is probably the first word you heard said with great love repeatedly as an infant. Because whenever we talk to our babies, we use their names. And so our names are quite precious. And we we can't expect that people would know how to say our names, especially if our names are in any way different from what are considered conventional or normal names. And I put normal in quotes for a society, even though in the United States, we're a multiracial, multicultural society. The default language and the expectation is that everyone knows English and that every name should have an English pronunciation. But of course, lots of names don't. But some names get the respect of being said correctly, such as French names, but not other names. You know, if you have an African-based name, an Asian name, a Latino name, most people will have like, but just say it in English, or can I call you something else, or don't you have a nickname, right? Yeah, in fact, I want to interrupt you, you for a second, because I remember <laughs> reading it, I wrote it down and underlined it, that somebody would actually, I swear to God, my mom would use this word, have the gall to say, can I call you something else? Can you talk to us a little bit about what that felt like, what that was like? Well, it's very jarring. It's like, well, why would I let you call me something else? Can I call you kitty cat? (laughs) (laughs) Can I just make up a name for you? But a lot of people do ask things that ridiculous. And I just recently spoke to some teachers who work with English learners at a school district. I was their guest for their Zoom year-end party. And I did a little snippet of performance. And then I took Q&A. 
And one teacher told me that she has a student whose name is consistently mispronounced by everyone, but she says it correctly. So she called another teacher to ask that that child be sent to her room because she does enrichment program with this girl. And so when she asked for the girl's name, and I'm sorry, I don't remember what it was, the teacher says, who? And she repeats it. And she says, oh, okay. So then she sends the little girl to talk to her English language teacher or English development teacher. And the little girl says to her teacher, Miss, my other teacher told me you need to say my name the way other people say it, even though that's the incorrect name. Really? It just broke my heart. Yeah. It just broke my heart. This is, you know, in 2020 in a school district right here in the Bay Area that a teacher would tell another teacher and send the the child as the messenger, please mispronounce this child's name like the rest of us. And, you know, a little kid, they're not going to usually defy a teacher. Also, they told me that some kids, if they insist on their names being said correctly, the teachers will punish them as being insubordinate. You know, don't be sassy. They'll tell a kid, don't be sassy correcting me. So it remains an issue. And for me, what I do with my play and with my blogs and my farewell teatro is I talk about these issues just to raise awareness. A lot of times people are simply unaware or sometimes insensitive as to the impact that it has. So I want to give people an opportunity. So I always say to folks when if they get my name wrong, they say it incorrectly, they call me Irma. I say, I know that that's one pronunciation of that name, but my name is Irma, right? And I give them an opportunity and I tell them, I'll help you get it right. I, I can't make somebody say my name correctly, but I think most people want to. And if they don't, well, they're not going to be my best friend. That's for sure. <laughs> what is the name of your play? Why would I mispronounce my own name? <laughs> yeah, why would you? <laughs> so how did a civil rights attorney with 30 years experience doing that, how did she become a playwright and actress and write her own show? I was actually taking a break from law 10 years ago or so, and I was going to work on this novel I had started many years ago, but it was just not going anywhere. And a friend of mine invited me to take a class with her at the Marsh Theater called Telling Our Stories. And she invited me because she said the teacher is so good. He's just really talented at helping bring out your story. So why don't you take the class with me? And I thought, well, okay, that's fine. And then I fell in love with the art form. And in reality, lawyers are storytellers. So there isn't a big leap between, I think, being a lawyer and being a solo performer and playwright. I just use a different stage, if you will to tell my story. And a lawyer is telling her story on behalf of a client, whether your client is a big corporation that's trying to merge or trying to minimize its damages or fires that has cost or make a community whole or someone charged with a crime. The, the role of the lawyer is to bring your client's story to the decision maker so that you end up with hopefully a just result. And I feel that my play is very much an outgrowth of my civil rights work. I'm passionate about social justice and having people examine 
their prejudices and the things that we do, all of us do, to other people. You know, it's them and us. And we're part of different groups, right? You know, maybe right now I'm part of the us group because I went to the same college as all these other people. So I'm part of this group. But my colleagues that I went to the same college with may not think of me as being one of them when it comes to ethnic and racial background. And so we're constantly in and out of different groups. And I think often we don't even think of ways that we act or say, we say things that lead to other people feeling diminished or seen as Mm -hmm. less than. And we're all guilty of it sometimes. And so I uh, use theater as a way of helping raise people's awareness about their own prejudices and biases because we all have them. Yes, we do. One of the things that you were mentioning, I, I watched the I watched the interview with, oh, I should have written her name down. She was talking about how her father had chosen a name for her from the Quran. Mm-hmm. Yes, Shadiqua. That was a very interesting social experiment. Do you I don't know if it's okay to talk about her story. Yes, I think it's a really good example of the kind of thing that is prevalent even in California. Yeah, yeah. And the story is about name discrimination. You know, people or in in employment, when you're seeking a job, the first step is often, almost always, to send your resume with your qualifications. If you have a name that you somehow think may put you at a disadvantage, some people do what is called whitening your resume. And that is removing items that may make you less desirable in the eyes of the decision makers. Maybe uh, your name is too Muslim or you don't want to include that you're active in certain kinds of organizations that may be seen as too politically active or too Black or too Latino. So there are different ways. And the story that Shadiq was shared is that in grade school, one of the teachers gave her the nickname D. Uh, which is part of her name because her name is spelled as J-D-E-E-Q-U-A, Shadiqua. And so she says, I took the nickname because my name was long and hard and it was just easy. So sometimes she goes by D and when she applies for jobs, she sends out resumes both under Shadiqua Smith and D Smith. And she says, people don't want to know a Shadiqua that they are wanting to know a D. Smith, even though everything about her is the same. And it's consistent with social science research around name discrimination in resumes and in employment. And this experiment has been repeated in New Zealand, in Australia, in England, in France, in the United States, and certain groups that are viewed less favorably, whether it's Muslims or North Africans, or non-Anglo-Saxons in Australia and New Zealand have the same experience, that the more their resume is whitened, the likelier they are to be moved to the next step of at least getting a reply and possibly a live interview and, heaven forbid, a job. Does this shock you that this is still happening in 2020? No, it doesn't shock me. And I, I guess it doesn't shock me because This is what I've spent my whole professional career doing, working on behalf of communities that experience discrimination, whether it's in education or employment or by being disenfranchised through voting rights violations. 
but you you do think he would be further ahead, huh? Yes. <laughs> so so although it doesn't shock me, it, it is hugely disappointing to to know that people still discriminate in such very uh, blatant ways. But it's not blatant to you if to you, not you specifically, but it it, it isn't blatant. <laughs> If you haven't been on that side, yes, you know, of the experience, why would you know about it? Yeah. I actually have a little story about a name which you might find interesting. When I was in fourth grade, I fell in love with French, which I know you have a story about people. May we? May we? French versus Spanish. But in my class, we were talking about names. Heather is not a French name. So she asked me to choose a different name. So we went by my middle name instead of my first name in that class. So I didn't take it as discrimination. As an adult, I would say I would have bumped on it, right? There is no Heather in French. There's Pauline, Pauline, Pauline. Mm -hmm. You said it like that. Pauline, yeah. I just wasn't French enough. (laughs) (laughs) And Heather is, is a Scottish name, not French. So... Yeah, you raise you raise an interesting point when we <laughs> when we learn other languages, right? And that some some languages are much French is very strict about the rules of it, you know. And there are some countries where there are actually lists of acceptable names. And if you want to name your child anything that's not on the list, you need a special permission. I don't think France is one of them. Really, what countries? Oh, I'm trying to remember, but. I have a law review article right here. It, this just shows you how important a name is if somebody's going to make a rule yes. about it, a law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember distinctly there's a country in, in South America where they would not allow somebody to name their child Malcolm because that is not a proper Spanish name. Or Portugal is the country that has a published list of Portuguese names. Uh, so I think when when you're when you're a student and if everyone is picking a French or a Russian name because that's part of the experience of studying a language, I, I don't necessarily think that that's discrimination. She's not renaming you for the entire school body. It's like in this class you are Mantel Pauline. <laughs> You know, in my class, you are Pauline, <laughs> but it's it's when a teacher takes it upon herself, himself, themselves to tell you what your name's going to be henceforth in this school. Yeah, that is hugely problematic. You talk a little bit about your childhood on your website. Your name was kind of an issue at one point in your childhood, right? My name really wasn't an issue until I <laughs> I needed to interact with the white world. <laughs> I grew up in complete segregation up until I went to high school. So it isn't until you deal with people who want you to pronounce your name the way they want you to say it rather than the way it's correctly said. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I have, I, I have a, a vignette or a scene in my play in which I called myself Irma. The first time I went to the school I was going to transfer to, which was the only school in town once I finished parochial school. And I had been an all Mexican American school. And I guess I wanted to fit in. 
And I wanted people to understand. And that's how I had heard my name pronounced at the doctor and dentist office. So I guess I thought that was what I was supposed to say. And one of my classmates said, why did you say your name like that? Right? Somebody recently wrote a comment in something I posted on social media saying that she had she observed her brother pronouncing his name the way the family does it correctly, whereas she changes the pronunciation of her name depending on who she's speaking with, meaning she pronounces her name differently when she's speaking to non-Spanish speakers. And she said, I realized, why do I do that? I don't want to do that anymore. And that's my feeling too. Like, why would I mispronounce my own name? If you can't say it or if you don't want to say it, that's on you. But why should I say my name incorrectly for somebody else's convenience? I'll slow down. I'll spell it for you. I'll pronounce it repeatedly. But I shouldn't have to say it incorrectly so that you can feel more comfortable around me. Mm -hmm. Was that the inspiration for your show? Well, my show... My show started out with, I was taking this class at the Marsh, and uh, we would do little 15, 20-minute pieces in class in front of, you know, a handful of other people. And often I was talking about some experience having to do with my witnessing something that felt discriminatory, unfair, put down of certain people as opposed to others. And often it was around names. And so I started just developing this theme of telling stories about names. And some of them are very funny and some are more serious. And then they grew uh, into a full-length play. And names are the theme, but I talk about many, many things related to the history of Mexican-Americans in the United States to my own personal story of growing up in, you know, very segregated circumstances in South Texas, eventually leaving South Texas, becoming a lawyer, living in different parts of the country, then using my voice to tell stories about how discrimination works and what it feels like. Because the whole point of theater is to give people an experience, to help them feel something, whether and not just theater, but all the performance arts, and I guess all sorts of arts, just like you see a painting and it moves you or not in some way. Mm -hmm. You go see a dance performance and wow, how flawless, you know, that move was. Or seeing someone say something on stage that connects with a feeling you had. Maybe you didn't have the same kind of experience as that, as that person but you know what that felt like, that sense of being diminished or being lifted up by another person, because it isn't always about someone doing something to make you feel bad. It's, it's some, sometimes about somebody validating you and saying, I see you, you know, I see you for who you are. Mm -hmm. Let's listen now to a clip from Irma's One Woman Show, why would I mispronounce my own name? Maria. That's my Starbucks name. I picked it because it's easy to understand and rolls off the tongue beautifully. And as I am of the Latin X persuasion, the name fits me. And let's be real, 50-50 odds that any random Latina you meet is named Maria. 
my real name, this four-letter word, I-R-M-A. I know, it looks like Irma to some of you. And that is one pronunciation of this name. But the name that my parents gave me is Irma. How about I teach you how to say Irma? I have lots of professional experience. I was a teaching assistant at the Department of Modern Languages, University of Notre Dame, the football school. This is how I put myself through law school. To learn to say Irma first, you need to smile. Yes, holding that smile, say E. e. Now, Irma. Irma. You are smarter than my Notre Dame students. We all meet people with names that we have never seen or heard before. It is always okay to ask someone to help you get the pronunciation of their name right. My husband says, give them this hint. Tell them to think of earmuffs. My guest today is Irma Herrera, and you've been listening to a piece from her one-woman show that she wrote called, Why Would I Mispronounce My Own Name? Beyond your family, who do you feel has validated you the most with the way they've used your name? Oh, my friends are so great. My friends are big advocates and are always correcting other people about how to say my name. <laughs> In fact, when, when Hurricane Irma was around three years ago, I was doing my play at the San Francisco Fringe Festival. So I, my play is, most of it is pretty set, but there's pieces of it that are always evolving and I bring in new material that's more contemporary. And so I thought, well, I've got to use something about Hurricane Irma. So uh, in my play, I said, you know, there's this big hurricane and it's in the news all the time. And I have my friends calling me up and texting me and sending me email and saying, I am so upset at how they're mispronouncing your name. And I would say to them, it's okay. That hurricane is an angry white woman. Talk <laughs> about me. That's her name, right? Her name is Irma. So just leave it be. It's not personal. That's very funny. <laughs> so I, I think most people, when they know that it's important to you, they will stand up for you. And I talk about that in my little vignettes that be a helpful bystander. If you know someone's name is being mispronounced, you know, take that person aside and say, oh, by the way, how she says her name is X, Y, Z. Because sometimes people are just so tired. And I meet people who tell me, I don't care that my name gets mispronounced. It doesn't matter to me. Or who have voluntarily taken on different pronunciation of their name than the name they were given. A friend of mine who's a, with the attorney general's office got assigned to work on a case or she was working on a case and a new lawyer in Southern California was assigned to it. And the lawyer's name was just spelled like mine. And let's just call her Garcia. So she calls her new colleague and says, oh, Irma, I'm so happy to be working with you. I'd like to tell you uh, how thrilled I am. I'm here. I've been working on this case for the last year. And the woman says to her, my name is Irma, not Irma. So my friend says to her, oh, well, I have this friend who's Chicana. She's a lawyer too up here in Northern California. She says her name Irma in the correct Spanish way. (laughs) I'm thinking, oh, just stop. (laughs) Don't go any further. (laughs) 
so um, the woman says, well, I pronounce mine Irma. So my friend is telling me, she's saying, I feel like I want to lecture her and have her see your play because she needs to be true to her culture and her. And I say, you have to let it go. <laughs> it is her name. She gets to decide, even if you have feelings about how she says it. That's really funny. So I get all kinds of funny stories. In fact, I want to do an episode about that for my Stairwell Teatro. So I'm always, always hearing funny stories. I mean, not not just funny. Some are very poignant stories. Like after seeing my play, a woman wrote me and said, you know, my mother changed her name in her 70s. I always knew her as Mary. But in her 70s, she decided to change her name to Maria Lourdes, I think it was. And she said, my dad and I were like so annoyed with her because it was such a huge inconvenience to change it for the Social Security Department and for all of these other, you know, legal matters. I didn't understand that when her parents came here and she was seven years old, when you become a U.S. citizen, a form asks you, would you like to change your name? I didn't know that until I was told the story hmm. and I went and verified it. And if you do, you can without having to go through a different proceeding. You can just legally change your name through the process of naturalization. So this woman's parents just changed her name to Mary. And so her daughter, who's a you know grown woman who sees my play, says, I never understood that my mother felt something that was hers was taken and she wanted it back. And so thank you for helping me see that. So that's, to me, some of the most rewarding stuff about the work that I'm doing is having people connect their own story, their family story with what I have shown on stage. Wow, that's a great story. And I'm sure you have so many. And in fact, I want to talk about how you're pivoting because of, of shelter in place, because I understand that you were scheduled to do your show. And then because of COVID, you weren't able to do that. Yes, I, I was in conversations with the Marsh, Stephanie Weissman, about picking dates, either late summer or fall, because, you know, these things are set months ahead of time. So she said, you know, send me dates when you're going to be available. So I had provided her a bunch of dates and then the theater shut down. So we never actually did schedule anything. And now everyone who was already scheduled, whose shows were canceled, of course, should have priority. So I don't know once the theaters are back when my, my show is likely to, to be back. So I was thinking about, well... I like to write. I like to tell stories. What can I do while we are in this period of hibernation, shall we say? And so I, I came up with this idea. Well, I have a camera. I have a tripod. I have an iPhone. I could just tell stories from my home. So I went around in different rooms of my house trying to figure out what's a good place to tell stories from. And then I got this idea of sitting at the top of my stairwell. I have a friend who's a, a filmmaker, and he said he'd teach me a few little things. So he said, why don't you take some footage in different parts of your house, and then we could figure out what's a good location. I send him three different tapes, and I said, 
hey, this one is from the stairwell because my stairwell has very beautiful lighting. We've got a stained glass window. It just gets lovely light in the late afternoon. My friend Daniel said, that's really nice lighting. And I said, I could say I'm coming to you straight from La Scala, you know, the stairwell in my house. (laughs) So he said, well, yeah, go with that. And so I started out. I had no idea whether people would like it or if I would like doing it because I'd never done it before. He taught me like two hours worth of lessons on basic editing. So then I started putting out these little videos that are five minutes or under. You were earlier talking about how people don't want to listen to something that's super long. So I just started thinking of all the stories I'd like to tell that I think would be well told on video. And since I do like to write and I've been blogging for a couple of years or maybe even longer, oftentimes with blogging, it's hard to capture the nuance of language pronunciation. And so I thought, wow, here's the whole opportunity. And I have a lot of pet peeves. That's my family. They go, oh, my God, you have more pet peeves than anyone I know. But one pet peeve is the, uh, the name of the Mexican town south of San Diego. Everybody calls it Tijuana. If you look at the spelling, it's Tijuana. There's no T-I-A. It's T-I-J-U-A-N-A. Well, the word tia means aunt. So I always say there's no aunt in Tijuana, right? It's just Tijuana. It's not Aunt Janie. (laughs) Tijuana. I I have to go back and do an episode on that. So it's an opportunity to have some fun. I love language. You were saying you fell in love with French. So did you learn French? Un petit peu. Un petit peu. (laughs) I spend a month full-time studying at the Alliance Française in Paris last summer. Formidable. Formidable is right. I love that word. Formidable. Fantastic. <laughs> it is so much fun to know other languages. I wish, I wish everyone knew the joy of studying and learning another language. Plus, you learn so much about your native language when you study another language. Because we don't We don't think about the structure of our own language. Yes, we do take grammar in school and all of that, but we don't, you know, we take that when when we're little, not when we have a better understanding of how language works. It's just such an enriching experience. And I wish that I lived in a country that was much more multilingual and where we promoted and embraced the retention and the support of people speaking multiple languages because it's just it's just fun and enriching. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting that we have this large country that is a melting pot, and yet there's a kind of arrogance around language because we don't have to. We're not close enough, say, to Quebec to need to speak French or to want to speak French. I work with somebody who is Swiss German, and she speaks German. She probably speaks French. She might even speak some Italian. Those countries are smaller. They butt up against each other. And different languages and cultures are part of their, the way that they just are, how how they are as a nation. We are not like that. Yeah, I have a theory about that. And we're going far afield. But I think that the United States, that people have a psychic intergenerational wound around having given up their native language 
when they came to the United States. And of course, we stripped it from Native Americans. We send kids to Indian schools and force them to adopt American English names and got rid of their native languages till we needed Navajo and Ute and other things during World War II for code talking. Uh, but that, that many people feel like my ancestors had to give up their language as the price of admission into this country. Mm-hmm. You do too. It's an unspoken social contract that many people believe is part of becoming American. Americans are English speakers and only English speakers unless you learn another language as an adult. But we do not want people to retain their native language as children. That's my theory. I'm sticking to it. I think you're right. There's a cachet around, oh, she speaks French. She speaks Italian. She speaks even Spanish. Mm -hmm. I wish I spoke Spanish. It's so strange. We're so, I don't know if it's ignorance or culture or whatever it is. It's very strange. But if somebody comes from another country, we look down on them. If they're from different parts right. of the world. Um, shithole countries, which you probably don't want to say that in your podcast. But uh, no, why not? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. <laughs> People who come from shithole countries, we, we certainly glorify and we welcome if you're Scandinavian, if you're Kirsten and you make, People say Kirsten and not Kristen. It's like, okay, I'll try and get that right, Kirsten. (laughs) But it's complicated. It's very complicated. It's very interesting how names and how it's all tied to politics and identity. There's such a wealth for you to mine. You'll have lots and lots create theater from. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm uh, working on a piece now about Elon Musk and Grimes's baby boy's name, which was <laughs> X Ash. I forget what it was like a symbol and a bunch of numbers and letters. And of course, legally, they can't register as that. So they, they changed it. But somebody had a very funny post on Twitter. It's like, white people be bending over backwards, learning how to say that name, but they can't for the life of them pronounce mine. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's very funny. I was just wondering, you mentioned that you were writing a book in 2017 called Tell Me Your Name. What happened with that project? So that was the original name of my play. Oh, when I first presented my play, it was called Tell Me Your Name. And I changed it at the suggestion of a guy Bruce Packman, who's a producer of plays, he does solo Sunday in San Francisco. He's been very supportive and kind to me. And he asked me one day, you know, when I, are you wedded to the name of your play? So when somebody asks you that, you immediately think, hmm, (laughs) where's this going, right? (laughs) I went, well, I like it. I mean, I picked it. Why, Why do you ask that? He said, I feel like the name of a play should tell you something about it. And when I see the name, tell me your name. I don't know anything. Is it like, are you a really friendly person? You introduce yourself to people. He said, I'm thinking that there's a better name for your play. Because by then he'd already seen it. He said, look at your script. I think that every script, you'll find that there's some words, some phrase that has some heat to it that captures the essence of your, your play better than what you have right now. I said, okay, well, I'll I'll do that. I'll look at it. And then we were meeting in person. And then as I was leaving, I said, 
here's the deal, Bruce. Like, I have no control over whether people can say my name correctly or not, or not, but why would I mispronounce my own name? And he said, that would be a good title. So the next day, I was going hiking with friends, and I, I did do what he asked. I went through my play and looked at, see if there were any other lines, and I picked out a, maybe a handful of things. And then I left the, why would I mispronounce my own name? And why should I mispronounce my own name? And I asked my hiking buddies, I had them written out in separate index cards. And I said, I'm thinking of changing my play name. What do you think of these? (laughs) And so I took a poll and then we had a big discussion about why would I versus why should I? And, you know, why should I seem to have for me sort of a defiant attitude like why should I and why would I is more of an invitation to ask yourself why would I because some people would there are some people who would say I don't want to start the conversation about something important around a conflict issue about how you say my name so if you want to call me Irma that's fine with me so why would I and that's why some people make make the decision, as uncomfortable as it might be, that I'm going to use a variation of my name, a nickname on my resume, because I want that job. So it's not for me to judge whether you should or would or could or ought to. It's for you to decide. So, but I was writing a book. I was collecting so much information because I do a lot of research from sociology, comparative law, about names and discrimination. And I wanted to put it into a book. But then I decided, I think a book is such a static thing. Whereas now with technology, with podcasting, with uh, having a website, there's so many other ways you can share information that is always fresh, right? You publish a book and Mm -hmm. it's static until you revise it and reprint it. Not that there isn't a place for that. So I decided to let that go. And I think in a way, maybe my stairwell teatro is feeding that desire to be working on new things because I spend a lot of time doing research for what's going to be a five minute episode. Much of the research you never see, but it's enormously entertaining for me and enriching. And I'm a researcher. And that's what it's all about. I'm a research geek. It, it is. That's what it's all about. <laughs> and then I can throw out some of these factoids in interviews. Mm-hmm. Like Portugal has a law that requires you to use a For sure. specific set of names. There you go. I did not know that. Yeah. And other countries too. Wow. Is there something I haven't asked you about that you want to tell me about? One of the things that's really important for me is that people not perceive this as an issue just that affects Latinos. hmm it's very much an issue for other people, which is why I wanted to interview Shadiqwa, uh, because I have this um, idea of collecting name stories from lawyers, where we work in a profession where there's uh, an ideal of what a lawyer looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And it's still, even though the one, the profession is close to 50% women and starting law school classes are more than 50% women. We still think of the lawyer and the judge as the white, tall man, (laughs) even though that's not what's depicted on TV. 
So I've been wondering a lot about whether you have a name that is a bit different, whether people judge you by that and make suggestions to you that you should change your name. Nobody tells me I should change my name. You just want me to pronounce it differently so that it's easier for them. But people often enough get familiar with how it's pronounced and they say it correctly. So I've been, you know, looking for stories and some woman posted on LinkedIn, an African-American woman, how she gets so much grief about her name. And there were hundreds of comments, not just from African-Americans, but from there was one from a guy who said, I'm Armenian and my partners always wish I used the shortened version of my name that would be easier for our clients. And so I'm just fascinated um, by how names in a professional context can be seen as a barrier to your advancement or to client comfort and what people do about that and the decisions that people make because that's affecting your, you know, your bread and butter, your, whether you're going to be, whether the senior partner you're working with you is going to want you to be part of the team. If he feels like, God, I mean, I don't even like his name and he doesn't want to use a different name. And you shouldn't have to be contending with that today or any day. right? Yeah. So I'm interested in doing some, some more research and interviewing around that and maybe in using it in training with or doing, um, you know, um, more, more awareness and more training in the legal community, Mm -hmm. something that has an impact on your colleagues. And you may not think so. You may think, well, what's the big deal? Right. Mm Mm-hmm. When I first started researching, it was, I was thinking of Shakespeare. What's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. But he was a white male, <laughs> English, and it does matter. Yeah. It does matter. Yeah, it does matter. And so our names mean something. Our parents usually picked a name for a particular reason. Maybe the reason was simply as they liked how it sounded, right? Or they had known a Heather. Do you know why you got your name? She was considering Robin and Heather. And I forget what the third name was. Do you know why your parents named you Irma? I do. I do. Uh, actually, my, and it's part of my play. My parents were going to name me Nora. Nora. Uh, Nora is a name I like very much. But not long before I was born, uh one of my aunts had a baby and they named her Nora. And so my older sister said to my parents, why don't you call her Irma, which was the name of a neighborhood girl that was very much loved in the neighborhood. And so that's how I got the name. Oh, so there you have it. And my middle name, my middle name is Dolores. And I was given that name because when my mother went to the hospital for my birth, both her parents were very, very ill and on their deathbeds. And she made a promise to the Virgen Dolorosa, the Virgin of Sorrows, because Dolores means pain or sorrow, that if her parents got to meet their new grandchild, she would name me after the Virgin of Sorrows. And so my middle name is Dolores. And for you know many years, 
through elementary school, I mostly went by Dolores. So I have many nicknames and I'm going to do an episode on nicknames. So I was interested in hearing you say that your mother didn't want your name to be something that could be shortened to a nickname. So I was wondering if there's an aversion, whether some cultures or some groups of people, you can't generalize from one person's experience. All I can say is your mother had an aversion to nicknames. It's on my mind because I'm interviewing a guy next week, Gustavo Arellano, who used to write a column for the Orange County Register called Ask a Mexican. And wow, <laughs> that, that, that <laughs> column was very popular. It was actually made into a play. He's a fantastic writer. He now works for the LA Times. But he had this whole segment about weird Mexican nicknames. And Mexican-Americans and Mexicans have a lot of weird nicknames, including names that you would consider very insensitive, like uh, calling somebody who has, you know, a disability by the disabling condition, like the deaf guy, the mute, the lame, and the fat one, the dark one. Wow. And it's so common. And it's often said with great endearment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that that's coming full circle to the conversation about insensitivity and cultural ignorance, even within a culture, right? What is acceptable within a culture as opposed to across a culture? That could take us down a rabbit hole. What is the last thing that you would like to say in this interview? What I would like folks to walk away with is that if they ever meet someone and they don't understand that person's name. It's totally okay to tell a person, can you please repeat your name for me? And can you help me say it correctly? Because I'd like to get your name right. And that sometimes you'll flub it up. Sometimes you'll mispronounce someone's name and they correct you and you just say, oh, sorry, can you remind me again so that I can get it. I make little notes phonetically that are helpful to me. I put it in my notes field on my phone and my computer. And it's the same thing with pronouns. Now, many people have on their signature line pronoun preference. Now, some people do not feel comfortable being referred to as either either he or she and prefer to use say a pronoun is a stand-in for your name. So we need to be respectful of people if they tell you, I use the pronoun they, not he or she. You know, it may sound wrong to us, but we have to get used to it and get over it because it's about respecting another human being and giving them the dignity of seeing them for who they are. And that's all I've got to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a tagline. Well, thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure talking with you today. It's so nice to meet you, Heather. You too. Thank you. Sounds like a great project. So thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you. You too. Thank you very much. All right. right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Pauline. Au revoir, Pauline. (laughs) (laughs) Au revoir. (laughs) Arrivederci. (laughs) Thanks for sharing your time with us today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we had making it. Check out the show notes for info and links mentioned in the show. 
You've also been listening to Scott Joplin's The Strenuous Life from 1902, generously provided here by Ragnar Helsbong's wonderful website, ragsrag.com. Share the love by giving us an awesome review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And please pass the show around to your friends and family. And remember to subscribe here wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you want to get into the act, like the Geeks in the Green Room Facebook page, post a video telling us your favorite Green Room story, leave a kind comment, and let us know who you'd love to see on the show, including yourself. I'm your host, Heather Morrison. See you next time on Geeks in the Green Room. <laughs>